0: Well, it's good to be here with each of you again. Uh, being gone does have a way of making you know, notice what you have at home and miss it and be glad to get back to it. So I know we've been back for a couple of weeks now, but, or a week and a half, uh, but it still is fresh on the mind, my mind of having been gone and of getting to interact with each of you again. So it's a real blessing to be here. The reason I mentioned that trip is because it stirred many thoughts in my mind, and it sparked the inspiration for the message this morning. Uh, as you know, that we were many of you know, we were in Europe on an Anabaptist history tour. That part was very informative and instructive, as were the interactions of, with the people in our travel group. Uh, That provided some unique opportunities and exposure to other ways of thinking and viewing scripture and history that uh, presented some pretty big mental challenges for me. Uh, Sometimes I felt like I was doing hurdles, and other times it was just a roadblock. It just didn't work. Uh, But it, it really sparked... Questions for me that uh, that come to the message for today, and I hope that you all can be blessed and benefit by some of my reflections. Last Sunday, Tony mentioned the picture on her wall, the story of Dirk Willem's. I didn't think of it till I was sitting here, but I should have put a picture up just to show you all. Going to those places, those meaning. That's one, and there were others where you actually walked on stones and on paths, on floors. You were in cathedrals. This is where people were debating what does Scripture mean and how do I live it, and in some cases paying for it with their freedom and their life. Those images are strong in my mind. In the story of Dirk Willems, we were at the location of where the, the city, I don't know if it was a palace or what it was, but it was like the government, the mayor, the, the, the primary governmental leader lived there. It was a big complex that's since been, it's gone into ruins, and you could see some portions of the wall. Another buildings has been built there. Dirk Willems escaped that place. So they took him, recaptured him, took him to another place a few blocks away. It was a church. It was a Catholic church with this massive bell tower and a narrow, I mean, narrow spiral staircase about this wide and very steep. You just went like this very steep and up, and then there would be rooms off of that. In one of those rooms, Dirk was held. In stocks, those stocks are still there. Well, stocks are there. They're not certain if it is the stocks. But the original door is still there in that cell. It's been replaced. It's setting in the room. That was actually the door that held Dirk in there. He couldn't escape that. He was way up in the air. I have a picture of what our bus looked like from the top of that tower. It is very tall. Why? would someone like Dirk Willems be willing to give up their faith or give up their life for their faith? What is truth? How did he decide what was true? In the course of our tour, the tour guide asked this question. He was reflecting on the Schleitheim articles of faith. And he asked one of the tour members, what would it take, we're talking about the ban. what would it take for somebody to be removed from fellowship in your church? So this is in a group of about 20. We ended up learning to know each other fairly well. And this person just very, kind of stumbled a little bit and very honestly said, well, I can't really think of anything. I don't. I don't know of any reason why somebody would be removed from our membership. And I'm sitting there shaking my head inside, like, how can how can this actually be said? Is there nothing, is there nothing in truth in the word of God that sets a standard by which people are either in or out of the church? Is that where we have come to? In fairness to that individual, she did send a note to her pastor and asked him the question. And he came back, he said, yes, there are some things that would cause that. But what strikes me in that is in that particular framework of thinking about scripture, the things for which we would actually separate in fellowship in that person's mind, and what they could readily think of were non-existent. This morning isn't about the ban. This morning is about what is the word of God and what does it mean? And I think I'm going to do a very small job of covering the topic There's so much that could be said. But what guides our lives? What determines how you live? Do you have a faith that's worth living for, worth dying for? If it's worth living for, it's worth dying for. If it's worth dying for, it's worth living for. I don't think you can separate those two. What do you have to pass on to the next generation? I was in a conversation with another tour member. And he was contemplating that in his 70s. and He's saying, how can I pass on cultural values that I want to the next generation? And it sparked a discussion about can you separate faith and biblical culture? Because that's really what he was wanting is how, how do I pass on? Or I think that's what he wanted. I'm not even sure if he could identify exactly what he wanted to pass on. And once again, I'm like, well, here's what I want to pass on. There's no, uh, there's different ways of living it out, but if that's not the core of what's being passed on, then it's very shallow. It can't be only culture. These are the words of God. Not what I say, but what God says. We have that. How do we know what it is? What is it? I'd like to take a look at that. I want to start in 1 Peter 1. This is not a passage that's normally, on my mind, as a primary scripture about the Word of God, but it describes one aspect of God's Word that I think is foundational to what we have to understand and accept about the Word of God. I'd like for you all to read with me on the screen. This is towards the end of 1 Peter 1, uh, beginning in verse 22, all together. Thank you for reading there. Note these words. All flesh is as grass, all the glory of man, everything earthy, human, is as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away. Doesn't take very much for grass to turn brown. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Notice the contrast between what the human mind does with truth, with life, its brevity, and the stability of the Word of God is in stark contrast to that. These words, and you'll notice the quotation marks here in verse 24, it's actually from Isaiah 40, uh, and I'll read a a portion of that passage as well. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? Here's the response. All flesh is grass, all its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever forever. I did have that last verse here on the screen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And then you have numerous other passages. Psalm 12 is another one. Uh, Verse 7, it's talking about the words of the Lord. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And I'm struck by the reality of that. Since the Bible was put into print, It has remained the most printed book. I haven't seen recent numbers on that, but I'm not aware that any has surpassed it. I know that in years gone by, it was certainly that case that is the most duplicated book in print. So I'd like to ask the question. I I hope this is practical. Some of this is my own thoughts uh, mixed in with Scripture, There's going to be some of the history of this. You all may have details uh, that you could fill in better than I can, and I'm welcome any additional truth uh, to what I might share this morning. Uh, There's a little, we're talking about the history of a collection of books that goes back nearly 2,000 years, and I want to talk some about that. But the first question I'd just like to ask. This is kind of going to be my format this morning. Ask a question and talk about it. What do we do with it? The first one is, what is the Word of God? I wrestled through this one a little bit over the last 10, 15 years because growing up, I would have said, this is the Word of God. I was putting a few things away on my shelf in my office yesterday, and I have a copy of an old Bible several copies of old bibles that mom and dad gave to me one i'd kind of forgotten where it came from uh, but it was fairly ragged it was a a chronological one-year new king james version that mom and dad gave to me the year that i moved to south carolina that's the word of god what's happened in the last little while what is the word of god this book this paper copy Is it the word of God? What makes it that if it is? Let me ask you another question. This is a digital recorder that I bought a number of years ago. And on it, it's also a player, but on it is some scripture. Does that make this the word of God? If that's all it had on it, now it has some other stuff, but if that's all it had on it, would that make this the word of God? What about this? I probably have, I, I don't even know, 20 Bibles on here in one of my uh, Bible apps that has multiple copies of the Bible. Is this the Word of God? What makes it so or not so? And so I ask the question, is it the medium or is it the content? Could somebody quote John 3.16 for us? pop it off no know somebody knows it for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that thank you a very common verse is the person that spoke that the word of god was that the word of god what was the word of god was it not the content I'm open to discussion on this, but these are my musings. I think the Word of God should be treated with great respect. But I don't think that should be limited to a paper copy. The respect for the Word of God comes in the way that I approach it, the way that I think about it, the way that I obey it, the way that I live it. I find great disrespect to the Word of God when we have all this opportunity, all these copies that we have. We, Western culture, so called Christendom, Christianity, and yet it's ignored. It's looked at in a dim view. What is the Word of God? It is the story of Almighty God, Creator God, working with humanity. You start with perfection. God created a perfect place just the way He wanted it. It was marred by sin. There's brokenness, and we're still living in that. But even right after that happened, God began the process of redemption. You will hear me say this more than once, but if you keep that concept in mind, it answers many of the challenges that people have with some, or difficulties some of the people have with portions of Scripture. It's a story of God working with humanity. He chose a perfect place, no death, all life, close relationships with others. So I think it's helpful to think about scripture, and I give credit here to, I don't even know who who this was, but I found it on a a blog. I was looking for a graphic that really describes what is the Word of God. It is a collection of books. It would be better looked at rather than this being one book, although it is compiled into one. This is really a collection of, what do we have, 66 books in most of our copies? Uh, That is what the Word of God is. And it's an assortment of law and history and poetry and wisdom and prophetic books. It has letters to churches in it. It's a collection of those books. So maybe a more relevant question is, well, how did we get it? And here's one of the places where we could talk for a very long time. There's, uh, and I, I am not an expert on this, these are... I'm going to share some of my basic understanding of it, and if there's other details that need to be filled in, that's fine. But first of all, the idea of a canon of Scripture, and you'll see on the screen the Old Testament canon. Think about the story of what was happening throughout the Old Testament world. You have events. You have things that are happening. People are recording them. You have messages from God. You have prophets. You have all of that stuff, and it's being recorded over probably, uh, let's see, the Old Testament, I'm trying to remember, roughly a thousand years, I believe, is what they believe, the time span of people writing that down. So what you have in the Old Testament canons, you have, there's four major acceptance groups. Uh, the Jews had their own version of the Old Testament, and I don't know how to say that, Tanakh maybe. Uh, that was recognized in the 8th century. Think about they didn't necessarily know when the canon was going to close either. When did the prophets end? Well, they had what they knew was several hundred years of silence at what we now call the end of the Old Testament, that transition period before Christ. And that is where it ended up breaking for them. Then there was this translation from the, old, the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, that's called the Septuagint. It included some apocryphal, the Apocrypha books. You have the Roman Catholic Old Testament. That came from, they had a, a Latin translation. Jerome translated, I think in the year 400-ish somewhere. Uh, and that included the Apocrypha. And then a little later came the Protestant Old Testament, which omitted the Apocrypha, and it's the most commonly used version in English Bibles today. So that's a really, really brief overview, and for my study, it is accurate. If any of you want to correct me later, uh, I welcome that. The New Testament canon, I'd like to spend just a wee bit more time, Uh, but once again, think about this. We're talking about a story of God's working with humanity. God's working with his people, so... Now we're in this transition period. Jesus has come. He died. He's raised from the dead. He's ascended to the Father who was with him, primarily his 12 disciples. And what did Jesus say to them as he left? When he was ascended, he said, all power is given to me. He said, go, therefore, tell, teach. We're going to get to some specific verses But how did they do it? Did they have anything written down at that point? Probably not, minimal. Uh, If anything written, it was oral. There was oral teaching. What happened in the early church? We know from some of these letters that we have in the New Testament that we had heresies that came into play. There were forgeries that came into play. And you'll see snippets of that in some of Paul's writings as he defends what what is truth and what is not. So you have the oral teaching, and then you have the need for written records, and I'll show you a graphic here in a little bit, but that started, we think, somewhere in the about the mid-40s, so maybe 44, 45 in there would be some of the earlier writings that were done, and that would have continued up till the end of the first century in the 90s. So they began to have written records. Follow the process of what's happening in the story here. Oral teaching, the apostles are dying off, the eyewitness accounts are dying off, they're starting to write it down. Now we go into the second century. People continue to write. How do we know what's Scripture? Well, there's several things that came into play Here is one list of criteria that I think is accurate. It seems like the early church said, well, it has to have apostolic origin, it has to have a recognition by the church as being authentic, and it has to have apostolic content. It cannot be in conflict with what the apostles were teaching, what they understood from Christ. All of those things had to match up. So there are other writings beyond what we have in our copy of the Scriptures that were not accepted in, those, uh, in some of those. There was different uh, councils that happened. There were um, two of them in particular, councils of Laodicea in 363 and 397. You notice that's a long time. We're talking 300-plus years after Christ. But if you go back to some of the other church writings, you'll find that, and I don't have a copy of this chart, but all of the Gospels, all of Paul's writings, uh, 1 Peter, First and 2 John, and Revelation, as early as 130, those were being fairly broadly accepted. So now you're talking about, oh, just a part of a generation away from the apostles, or one generation. So going back fairly early, most of the Old Testament as we have it was there uh, with minimal dispute. There was dispute, uh, but they came up with this criteria, and the Bible, the New Testament that we have today was largely formed in the 300s and has not changed since. Does that strike you as stable? It does me. Uh, I say it's not changed since. I'm sure there are are understandings and there are other textual discoveries and whatever. But the basic message and books of Scripture remain there. Now, a couple of things I want to note in this is the apostolic origin and content. One of the things you'll find some people objecting to is, well, not all of the authors of the New Testament were from the Twelve Apostles. Uh, It's true. Mark is one example. Uh, It's thought that he was, that his home was one of the homes used by Jesus and his disciples. It's also thought that he very possibly was present uh, when Jesus was crucified, that he was interacting. He is the John Mark who traveled with Barnabas and Saul. That's the Mark that we're talking about. And... From what we know, apparently he sourced the Apostle Peter in the writing of his gospel. So in many ways, what you see in Mark could have been from Peter's perspective. And once again, as the early church looked at that, they said, that is in keeping with apostolic teaching. It has that origin. We accept it. Another one is the Gospel of Luke. Luke was not one of the 12 apostles, but he traveled with Paul, and he was a physician. He was educated. In some ways, this is my terminology, it appears to me that he was an early church historian. He was the one who wrote the book of Acts, who gave us that record, as well as the gospel. But once again, he was interacting with the apostles, and the church said once again, that's authentic, that matches up with the apostles' teaching. We accept that. Then you have the Apostle Paul. He has a lot of letters that he wrote to the church, churches. I find that one interesting. Uh, oh, let's see. I need to catch up here. I'm sorry. Falling behind on my slides. Yes, so the Gospels, Acts, Paul's, Apostles, you see the list as early as 130, and then the current list that we have accepted in the councils of 363 and 397. Before I go to the Apostle Paul, I want to do one more thing that I forgot, which is why I have this to try to keep me on track. We need to go to John 14, and you can see it here on the screen. Jesus talking to the disciples. You remember that uh, chapter begins with Jesus telling them that he's going to so I go to prepare a place for you. But then he talks about what's going to happen. In 25 he says, these things I have spoken to you, being present with you, Remember, he's introduced them to the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He says, but the Comforter, that Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. I want you to notice these three things. I think it is critical in understanding the link between Jesus, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, the apostles, including Paul, He says he will teach you, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance whatever I have said to you. Now that's amazing. You think about Jesus walking and talking with his disciples for three years. No way that that could all be written down word for word. I think it's why John said, do I have that here? I'll get to that in a little bit, but John said there's so much more that could be written. There'd just be volumes of books that would fill the world. But Jesus said to the apostles specifically, the Holy Spirit is going to help you remember what I taught you. He's going to bring it to your mind. He says, whatsoever I have said to you. That's an amazing thing to me. And uh, I believe that that verse also applies to us today. The Spirit also speaks to us through the words of Jesus that have been recorded for us. Let's talk a little bit about Paul's apostleship. He was called by Jesus in Acts 9. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and a light shone. You all know the story. This is very interesting to me, verse 5. Paul says, "'Who are you?' Then the Lord said, "'I am Jesus.'" And you all know the way that story unfolds. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. They had a conversation. And the apostle Paul was very plainly called by the Lord to be an apostle in the church. You go to verse 10, now we have a conversation between Ananias and the Lord. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision... Go down to verse 15. Here's what the Lord told him. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So Paul was included in that. Later, Paul would say about himself that he was an apostle born out of uh, like a late birth. He came along later, but he did meet Jesus, he described that in some of his sermons. And In fact, I find this interesting. I did put this on the screen. Look at the way he starts many of his letters. I didn't go through and look at all of them. This is just a sampling. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And Colossians, uh, pretty much, a, it is an identical wording. 1 Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't want to belabor the point. I'm just saying that in that what makes scripture, what were the acceptable things? It had to have apostolic origin, and Paul was included in that. Let's ask another question. So is the word of God complete? One of the words that I think, I didn't even go back and look. I believe this is in our church covenant, is the plenary word. I'm not sure. Yes, we have it here, plenary. It means complete with all that is necessary, not necessarily all that could be. Uh, in, in terms not related to Scripture Plenary is talked about when there's a gathering. It might be an assembly of people, maybe a governing body. It's when everybody is there that needs to be there. It doesn't mean everybody in the organization is there, but everybody that needs to be there for that event, it's there. We have a similar thing happening with this collection of books. Is it everything that could be said? No, Is it everything that is true? No. But it holds everything that we need to know. It's complete in the sense we don't need anything else to truly understand the message that God has for us. And what is contained in it is true. Anything that's not here will not contradict what is here. Any other truth will not contradict that. And here we have these verses I wanted to show you, John 20. This is what John had to say towards the end of his gospel. Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And then the last chapter, right at the very end of the book, John says this, there are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I wouldn't have minded if he would have tried. I would have never gotten them read, obviously. But that would be an incredible record. Is it complete? Yes, it is complete. So... If we look at this, I have a list here on two pages. I tried to keep the font big enough. This is the chronological order of what is believed, uh, when it is believed the books were written. So James would have been the first one, Galatians shortly thereafter, Mark, Matthew, beginning there in the mid to late 40s, and ending in the 90s. You'll see there's a little bit of a gap there We go from the 60s up towards the 90s pretty quick. And those last books are written by who? The Apostle John, the only apostle who died a natural death and he lived to an old age and he was writing these books in his older years. What's interesting is that one of the people who verify... The validity of scripture is Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. And so you go out into the early second century, you have Polycarp being one of those people who's saying, Yeah, I knew him. Yes, that's what he taught. That's right. That's true. And it's one of the ways that that canon was beginning, uh, began to be formed. So it is complete. It does not need anything else in the sense that God has to. If you have somebody wanting to add books to Scripture or other things to it, it's obviously a red flag because we have what we need. Is it reliable? Can you count on it? How do I know this is actually true? What, why should I have confidence in this? Like first to think about that. I'm gonna mix in a few other questions as we think about it. But once again, go back to that Holy Spirit job description. What is the Holy Spirit's job? It's to bring to your remembrance all things that I have taught you, specifically to, to the apostles. First of all, it was to them. So who decided what was the word of God? Was it just individuals? And let's bring that down to today. If there's certain parts of Scripture, this is one thing I heard uh, recently. I've heard it different times, but I did hear it recently again. And that was that, uh, actually, this is a quote very nearly. I think one of the church's biggest problems, this is not my quote, by the way, I think one of the church's biggest problems is the Old Testament, if we could just get rid of that. It was one of the things that kind of set me back. I'm like, okay. My follow-up question to that individual was, so who decides what part of Scripture belongs there and doesn't? Who decides that? How do you know? Well, they didn't have a very good answer for that because that obviously became problematic pretty quick. Uh, In fact, I will just say that anybody, me, anybody, who takes it on themselves to decide that this portion of Scripture is not Scripture, what have they done? Have they not elevated themselves above church history, and I'm going to say above God. They have made themselves the arbiters of truth. And on what basis? Their own small experience. So for me, there's things I don't understand well, maybe not at all, but I would rather go back to saying The people who live closest to Jesus, nearest his time, the early church was seeking truth. They were refuting heretics. They were identifying forgeries, and they said, here's our list. I'd rather go with that than me trying to figure that out 2,000 years later. Is it reliable? I think it is because it has that train of Jesus, Holy Spirit, apostles, recorded and verified by those who were present that this is the Word of God. What about the Old Testament? I don't like it. You heard the quote I just gave you from someone else. I don't actually like the Old Testament either, to be honest with you, parts of it. If it was put into audio-visual form, I wouldn't want to watch portions of it. I don't need that. It's horrible, some stories of it. Is that God's fault? Why are they there? Why is it recorded? I come back to my very basic premise. I'm just kind of simple. It's a story. God created a perfect world. It's what he wants. People messed it up along with the devil and sin and broke that perfect thing. And what do you have in the Old Testament? You have a very graphic story of what happens when people are outside the will of God. And for me, it's not a whole lot more complicated than that. And threaded in through that, Is God finding a way to redeem humanity? His story of the way He did it. So you don't have to like the Old Testament. I don't have to like it. The horrible stories that are there. I some of them I would choose to not read to young children. They should be introduced to it sometime. It's there. It's the story of perfection, brokenness, and redemption. Continue on with that vein. I asked an individual in this discussion, I said, so the Bible, is it the word of God or does it just contain it? Well, his answer was that it contains it. If the word of God only... If the Bible... Word that correctly. If the Bible only contains the word of God, if it is not reliable as the word of God, then once again we are presented with the dilemma of deciding what is or what is not from the Lord. When we accept the word of God, as the word of uh, the Bible, as the word of God, we seek to understand it as a whole and in the proper context. The contradictions and discrepancies often referenced by skeptics can easily be addressed from a faith perspective. And in fact, I'm going to say, I I want to be understood here, the possibility of misunderstanding, so hear me. If we seek to, no. If our primary goal is to make everything about God understandable, and making sense in our human minds. What is that doing to God? Is that not making him man-sized? A purely intellectual approach to Scripture removes the need for faith because humanity is elevated to the level of supreme knowledge equal to or above God Himself. Is it the Word of God? All things were written for our learning. Romans 15 says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. That was written about the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures were put there for our learning. There's things we learn from it. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says something similar. All these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Those things were written so we can learn and to be admonished. In fact, that verse comes in the context of describing the children of Israel and their rebellion. You can go look at it, 1 Corinthians 10. I started with scripture, I'm going to end with scripture, but first I have one more question I want to attempt to address. I do not have it on the screen. I first heard this quite a number of years ago. I've heard it since a few times. I heard it on this trip that we just took. Sometimes I think I've heard it from an honest, open heart. Other times, I think it's come along with some ulterior motives. The question is this. Can the Bible become an idol? I don't know if you've mused on that one or not. What do you do with that? Well... The answer depends on what you mean by the question. If you mean this physical object, this medium, or this, technically, I suppose you could say that's an idol or has that potential. But if you mean... The Word of God itself, the content that comes from the very being of God, that explains His character, that tells us how to live, that is a part of Him. How can that be idolatry? How can that be anything but connected to Almighty God and service and worship and love of Him? So if you're one of those people that's asked that question, I'm not going to stand in judgment of it. I'm simply going to say, if we really believe this is the word of God, if we believe that he said what he meant and he meant what he said, should that not be very, very high on our value and priority list? And how can that be in conflict with worshiping an almighty God. I don't believe it can be when we're talking about the content. We're going to end with Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, this is the one that's probably most familiar when we think about what is it that Scripture is. It's described here, Uh, verse 14, Paul is telling Timothy to continue in the things that he has learned. He says in verse 15, From your childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures. What would Timothy have known? The Old Testament. And you think about that. Uh, I wanted to bring this in earlier. For God, here's a good place, though. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, meets up with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story? What did he do? It says he expounded the Scriptures... He opened their eyes about how the things that had happened to Christ, to Jesus, how that was explained in the Scripture. That was the Old Testament. Jesus used the Old Testament to show the disciples what was happening and why to him. It's the same thing here. For those who don't like the Old Testament, you can't ignore those truths. Jesus himself used it. It pointed to him. Verse 16. Now we've got to finish 15. The Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Amazing. Salvation can be taught and learned from the Old Testament as well. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm going to go back and take a look at this for a little. Inspiration, to inspire, to breathe in. Divinely breathe in. You see the Greek transliteration there, and I won't try to pronounce it, but Theo denotes God. The divine aspect of that in breathing, it's God-breathed words. I was thinking about that, This is an opinion. I give it that way. The first part of it is not opinion. I think God, these words of God are inspired. They're God breathed at least three times. The first one is not an opinion, it is fact. That is, when God gave it, when He said it, when it was His will, that is a fact. That is the first time. The second time was when the Holy Spirit reminded the apostles of what had been taught. And the third time is when the Holy Spirit reminds you and me of it. It is continuing to be God-breathed. These are the words of God in which he comes to us, and through his word he reveals himself. Four things that the scriptures tell us that... All Scripture is good for doctrine. It's teachings and tenets of God and His ways. That's what doctrine is. It's good for reproof. It's conviction of what is right and wrong. It might tell us we need a U-turn. We need to go the other way. And then there's that correction. It's the, I like this analogy. You do the U-turn. You're going the wrong way. We get convicted. We've got to go this way and now there's correction. Okay, it's right here is where you need to live. Let's straighten that line and make it line up with God. And not only that, it's instruction in righteousness. Just in general, it's a broad teaching of how to apply the doctrines of God in our daily lives. A few summary thoughts. If we don't trust the Scriptures as the words of God then what do you trust in? If we don't trust the scriptures as the words of God, then what's the point of Christianity? How do you know anything that's true? What's the source? Our logic? Others' logic? In my mind, rejection of scripture is the epitome of idolatry in which We become the idol. Our mind and thoughts become our God. Am I smarter than God? Do I know more than Almighty God does? Absolutely not. And I will say, then I shouldn't act like it. The notion that everything about God must be understood by the human mind elevates humanity to the level of God and reduces him to the size of man. It is simply pride, arrogance, and idolatry when it's done. But it doesn't feel right to me, some might say. Well, feelings matter. God cares deeply about your life experience. However, feelings have very little to do with establishing truth. Truth is true whether I accept it or not, whether I like it or not, whether I feel it or not. We ought to live as though our lives depend on the Word of God. Because it does. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for today.